Well, it looks like we're live here again in the teen room, and we're going to start our Tuesday night Bible study on Zechariah chapter 9 and 10. We'll get started with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, get going. Dear Lord, we ask that you would be with us this night. Help us, guide us, and show us what it is you want us to do. We ask for wisdom each day. We ask for help in this time when our society is troubled, filled with many difficulties. We ask that you would give us the plan of what you want us to do. Help us to know what we are to do today. And help us be willing for today and for tomorrow. Help us to be obedient and interested in being your child. Help us to know those differences. We thank you very much for being kind to us and loving us. Just pray that you'd give us a hand as we walk each and every day. And may we do what we can and the very best of what we can and not allow the situation to drag our spirits down, but to fight and do the things we ought to do and stand as we ought. We thank you for all these things. In your name, amen. Well, we are doing Zechariah, chapter number 9 and 10. Chapter number 9 and 10, book of Zechariah. And I appreciate the waves out there too, just letting people know I'm alive here. <clears throat> Chapter 9 and 10, we've been going through the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet. He's a prophet for the uh, nation of Judah, which we have gone in previous sections and talked about the nation of Judah. We're going to talk about that nation again tonight. Specifically, Judah is a big piece of, of this book and its identity. And that's one big thing that we are going to look into tonight is the identity of Judah. How God looks at Judah and identifies Judah in, as opposed to other nations, okay? Other nations around Judah. So, Zechariah's message has included many things uh, about Jesus Christ, particularly identifying him as the branch. Now, he shows up a few different separate times in Zechariah, but the branch comes out, which means he comes from the root of David, which appears to be dead. We've talked about this in the past. The, the kingdom of David is like this, this kind of old chopped down stump by the time Mary and Joseph get there. There really isn't much left of it. It kind of just looks like it all, all its glory is gone. Mary and Joseph are in poverty, which is not typical for the family of one of the greatest kings ever to live, and in fact, probably the most wealthy king ever to live, King Solomon, uh, son of David. So they, as they are traced down through David's roots, we find that they end up being just a remnant left of David. But both coming from David, they bring the branch into, into the, the picture. And the branch is this little tiny branch that grows from the root and becomes a full and mighty tree and actually overshadows that old stump of what David was. So we see that big picture. We're going to see another picture of Jesus Christ tonight. Um, so we're going to look kind of in the past, and this is the ancient past, and then we're going to look a little bit further ahead than that. And then oftentimes, as we've said many times, uh, the way that we look at prophecy is the mountain range. 
And as you approach a mountain range, if you're driving in the western United States or anywhere where there's big open flat plains and then they rise up to these mountains, as you drive along, you're a little tiny dot and you drive along that road that winds up through and it's gone into the mountains somewhere. As you drive and approach those mountains, you begin to see, uh, in, the, in the beginning, you see a big flat mountain range, a, a picture of all the mountains together, just like you would draw it on a flat picture. But as you approach those mountains, you get up to it, you find you, you come across one mountain top here, and then you have another mountain top here, and then you have another one over here, and as you drive through them, what appeared to be a flat range uh, actually takes time to get to. The very, very same thing happens when you go through time in a prophecy. And this is what's important to understand. Because when you read prophecies, oftentimes it's those, those big views. You have a big mountain range view of what God is going to do. And God says, well, here's what it is. He shows it to a guy like Zechariah. Zechariah then shows you the picture and says, here's what I see. And it's very accurate. It's exactly accurate. But what it does not give you is a time frame. So oftentimes that time frame is, well, it takes time from event one and event two and event three to happen. But event one was really this mountain. Event two was this mountain. And event three was that mountain. And he told you how he sees it. He looks and, and describes it as it's happening in front of him, but really you have to travel through time to experience each of them and say, oh, that was the mountain we just passed by. That's this piece of the prophecy. So it looks jumbled, but instead it is actually clear and uh, it actually puts together a large picture. It, it is very well covering of a long time frame and gives you the highlights of what you need to know in detail that you will come across these mountains, you will come across these events uh, in prophecy. All right, so as we look at that, we're going to do some of that where we say, here's the mountain range tonight, uh, and this is what happens at this time, and this is what happens at this time, and this is what happens a little later. All right. Oftentimes, prophecy includes things that would happen in the short future and in the long future. And it may not be exactly in that order when you look at it in the mountain range, but as you pass in time in, in 3D, you go through it versus just the two-dimensional picture. In 3D, you realize there's time in between some of these events, although each one is accurate. All right, so we're going to start in the chapter number nine as we've worked our way through up to this point over the last few weeks. Chapter number nine of the book of Zechariah, starting at the verse, first verse. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrick. And Damascus shall be the rest thereof, when the eyes of man, as all the tribes of Israel, shall be towards the Lord. And Hamath also shall, shall border thereby, Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. And he will smite her out in the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he, shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah, and Ekron as a Jebusite. 
All right, so there's a lot going on in this first few verses, and when you read it, as I did over and over again, it took a lot to sink in. In fact, I often went to other translations and other sources to look to find out a little more clarity for what it means. I'm reading this in the King James Version. Uh, It is sometimes a little more difficult to understand. They use words and phrases that we don't necessarily use today. Not that we can't understand it, but you don't necessarily, uh, your brain doesn't process them as quickly in our modern language because our modern language thinks a certain way. So as we look to it, what's happening here is this. There is a group of people, a group of cities, and we'll call them areas, okay, or territories, some city-state type places, uh, some that are just kind of cities and other ones that are sort of areas, okay? Each one of these areas and cities and things has a plan, is a part of this plan from God. The thing is that we look at a few of these things, like the city of Hamath, okay? Hamath is called out. And the city of Damascus is called out. All right? And Tyre and Sidon. All right? Those are specifically called out. Gaza is called out which is sort of a territory, Ashkelon, and Ashdod, both called out. Those last three are areas particularly with the Philistines, okay? Philistine areas, and... Then there's, there's something else mentioned in that, the Jebusites. Alright. So we'll look back at those in a minute too, just to see what that means. The idea is this. If you were to break that down and look at that in a very high level view, what God is saying is that there are people within these areas and in these cities that have taken over these areas or have never uh, been really conquered as they were told to be conquered by the Jews early on and they have had influence and they have grown in their places. So if we're to look at that famous map that I love to draw, uh, of course I always draw it perfectly to scale and uh, this is the Mediterranean Sea and this area this northern area is Israel this southern area is Judah okay and this is the Jordan River this is the Sea of Galilee there and the Dead Sea the Red Sea down here and the Nile okay and as I joke I always draw perfectly to scale It's not to scale, it's not the point to have it to scale. The point is to tell you that within the borders of of this original promised land, which God made a promise for this promised land, God said, I'm going to give you this area to the Israelites. You have to go and take it over. I told them originally with Joshua, I mean, excuse me, with Moses, Joshua was a spy, went into the, they went into the bottom, southern part of this, they looked and they sent 12 spies in and said, we can't do that, we can't take that over, they got giants there. What they had run into was some of the Philistine families, uh, believed to be the sons of Anak, a a particularly large man passing his genes down through the years, uh, making many, many of his 
ancestors, very big people. Of course, one of them we learn eventually is the giant, the famous giant Goliath. So, God has said, you take these cities out, you get rid of them, uh, you get rid of the Philistines out of there, and you get rid of all of these people, okay, and you have influence on these people. But instead what happens is they actually kind of leave some of them in parts and pieces. They take over some cities and other ones they kind of make a deal with. Or they kind of ignore them. Or they walk away from them. Or they don't do fully what they've been told to do. And so in all of these little spaces there are remnants and parts and pieces. Okay? Tyre and Sidon or are on the edge. Okay? Up in here I believe they are either way they are to have the Israelites are to have influence on these people and take away all of the old religions, all of the things that God says don't worship these other gods. Well, they don't do a good job at it. And because they don't do a good job at it, they end up making a mess and a dotted mess of some people that aren't from Israel and some people that are their enemies. And because of that, for generations and generations, they battle and they fight with those people. The Philistines are always one of the famous people that they battle and they fight with. The Jebusites were supposed to be taken out originally uh, with Joshua and his conquest through, but they weren't quite really done with what God said, you do this. Eh, we're not going to quite do that. And it took generations later, generations upon generations, before King David came along and really wiped out the Jebusites. So, either way... All of these areas are not really being influenced by Israel as they were supposed to be. In fact, it's been the opposite way. Since the Israelites moved in to the Promised Land, those other areas influenced the Israelites, took them to worship their gods instead of the God, and sort of pulled them away over time, over time, over time, and they it really became the ruin of them. Now, Judah split from Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah split from Israel because of a bad leader that got put into place, and Judah, on its own, kept on doing the things that they were told not to do. These territories had influence on them. Okay, These territories were uh, Tyre and Sidon were big fishing villages, shipping villages. They were very, very wealthy merchant places. And they had a lot of influence on what was important to Israel. A lot of goods and things came in through there. And a lot of other ideas from other places came in from there. And they often would influence the Israelites in the wrong direction. So, because of this influence, God says, you, you other nations, you other territories, you are not my favorites. In fact, not only not my favorites, but you are enemies because you don't want anything to do with God. And because you are enemies, you will see what I will do with you. And so God takes his first thing and he specifically calls out each of these cities and areas and says, you, you'll do this, but you will no longer be able to uh, survive this. Or your king will die. Or tired side on, you're filled with silver and money everywhere. And you will be wiped out. All right. He has, he has not such good plans for all of these. In fact, he says, you will be like the Jebusites. Okay, Ekron is one of those places. Ekron, you'll be like, one of the, like the Jebusites, which seemed like they did okay for a while until King David came and says, no more. You're gone. 
taken you out. We should have taken you out a long time ago. You have continuously taken and destroyed and done bad things to our people. No more are you going to do that. So, this is the first seven verses of chapter 9. Calling out enemies of God. And that's really the point is we want to say these are the enemies of God. Okay, we're going to talk about, we said we we're going to talk about the identity of Judah. So well, let's get into verse number, uh, we'll pick up again at verse number 7 again. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations were between his teeth. And that was talking about the Philistines eating and, and doing things uh, against God specifically. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God, and he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. All right? And that's where there will be, God will pick out the ones who say, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with it. And he will leave behind the ones that will accept God. Verse number eight. And I will encamp about my house. Because of the army, because of him that passes by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. Alright? So here is what God is saying. I have allowed, he says, I have allowed these places to have influence, these other things, these nations to have influence. In fact, in fact, I allowed Babylon to come and take away all of the people in Judah, destroy the temple, wipe out people, and haul away slaves. I allowed that to happen, but now I'm done with that. that doesn't, that's not going to happen anymore. I'm finished totally with that, and I am going to take... And set my eye on Judah. Alright? I'm going to watch Judah. Now, it's not that God was not watching Judah before. It's not that he didn't know and all of a sudden Babylon slipped in when he didn't know about it. God knew exactly what it was. He predicted that it would happen. He told them through different prophets it would happen. But in the end, he now is saying, I have a special care I'm going to put over Judah now. Because you are back... And this is one of the main focuses of Zechariah is to rebuild the temple. They had set up the base of the temple and they needed to finish this temple. So he says, you've got to get back on it. I know it's not going to be as big and mighty of a temple that King Solomon once built, but it will be a great temple because my son, Jesus, will walk in it. And that's why the glory of the temple will be much better than Solomon's temple. I have going, I'm going to set my eye on Judah. All right? I'm going to watch Judah. And he says, I will not let my temple be destroyed. All right? Not let it be destroyed. I cannot let my temple be destroyed anymore. Alright? Now, when he says this, he says this in a very uh, clear way. I'm going to protect this temple. Because he has that purpose of letting Christ walk through it. Now, if you were to look in history of time, there are several hundred years, I think it's five or six hundred years between when they finished building this temple in Zechariah's day until when Jesus Christ comes along. Alright? So Jesus Christ comes along. There's hundreds of years and God is going to protect that weak little town or that weak little uh, nation of Judah against someone else coming in and destroying that temple. Until... The time is over when the glory of the Lord is in the temple. And that is Jesus Christ. The branch shows up. Okay? Jesus the branch shows up. And we're going to 
particularly see when he protects that until that glory of the Lord comes in the temple. He's going to protect that temple. I'm going to watch Judah. I'm going to make sure that Judah's okay and protected because Jerusalem is that capital city and the temple is there and my son Jesus is going to end up in that town. He needs to go there. He will be crucified in that town and he will die for the sins of the world. And that's my plan and I'm using them to do this. Alright? So, it's an exciting thing because he's saying I'm protecting them. And why is he protecting them? Well, right into the next verse we're going to see the next couple of verses as we read Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So he says, I will protect my temple. I will watch Judah. I will protect my temple, not let it be destroyed. He says, because one of the most exciting things, the king, your king, is coming. Your king is coming. How will you know when the glory of the Lord shines in that temple and that mountain has been passed? And this is prophecy. Alright? Prophecy. And he says, here's something to look for. Here's the mountain peak to look for. You will see your king coming. He will ride in to Jerusalem. O daughter of Zion. Okay? Or that's Jerusalem. Your king will come. He will be meek and lowly. Alright? Meek and lowly. He will be riding on a donkey. But not just any donkey. In fact, it says the foal of a donkey. Which means... A young donkey, never been broken, never been trained to ride upon. All right. So when Jesus comes to earth, and it's his time to enter into Jerusalem, he sends his disciples ahead, a few of them, and says, go to this guy, find a guy uh, that's got the pot of water on his head, and you'll see that guy untie his, the foal of the donkey that's there, Take it back. And they probably had more difficulty pulling that little donkey all the way back to Jesus. And as Jesus came into that city, he got on the back of that donkey and rode that foal in like complete obedience. Like that donkey had been trained for years and years and years. Because Jesus is the king of all. And the donkey may have been the first one to recognize it. So as he rides in, meek and lowly, all right? This means he does not come with great fanfare. He comes in meek and lowly on a donkey. And a donkey is typically, up until it starts to be made a little bit different, means something different, it's typically been a work animal. But... He is coming in meek. He is coming in lowly. But he is the king. Make no mistake about it. Because he is meek and lowly, unlike most any other ruler, if a king rides into town, you knew it. And he was coming with great fanfare and big uh, groups of people and other animals and as much noise and everything he could make and soldiers. And here comes Jesus on a donkey. 
with a few of his closest friends walking by. That's it. There was no great fanfare, but the people, the children understood it because they thought back and said, your king will ride into the city on the foal of a donkey. Now they knew that foal. They've seen that foal. Somebody's seen that foal. Is that young donkey riding in on that donkey. Alright? Meek and lowly. Coming in. There's Jesus Christ. And he says, that's what I'm protecting that temple for. That's what I want that temple to be protected for. Alright? So... Jesus' entrance into the city to be crucified, to be watched for a few uh, days, just like the lamb from Passover is watched, and we've talked about that many times in the past. He is watched, and he comes in with an entrance. The only time he really makes an entrance like this, for many purposes. The one, he brings to prophet, that prophecy to truth, to become true. And he comes in riding on that donkey, and when he does it, little bells and whistles go off in, in some people's heads. And probably the, the kids, more than anybody, say, hey, the king says he's going to be doing that. We know prophet Zechariah told us this. That's what we should be looking for. And they lay down and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's only a few short days later, the tide has turned towards him, and he has been crucified and killed. Hatred. Now, that's Palm Sunday, and that's what God is looking and saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. As we pick up verse number 11... Understand, before we go on to verse 11, um, God has some things that He is telling, going to tell Judah, all right? Not only this, your king is coming, but I have some promises for you, particularly you, Judah. I'm going to watch for you. I told you I would protect your temple, and I'm going to keep my eye on you now, Judah. But I have a few things specifically that I'm going to do. Things that will make you unique. And so, as we read, we're going to go pick up in verse number 11. As for thee, also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have set, set forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Right? He says, you've been, you've been in prison. You've been hidden away in a terrible prison okay, for some time. You've been in Babylon, and I am going to bring you back, and I'm going to double what you once had. Okay? This is my promise to you. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. He says, I'm going to make you a weapon and use you to defeat those people around you. I'm going to use you to defeat them. I'm going to make you strong as a weapon. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as lightning. And the Lord shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. And the Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. And they shall drink, make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls, and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be as stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. So I have picked you out. All right. This is more emphasis on I've picked you out. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to use you 
to defeat others around. I'll make you strong. I'll make your young men and your young women joyful. They'll be full with food and wine. They'll be filled with plenty. And you see these promises that God has made. It's an interesting thing because God has always kept his eye on the whole country of Israel. But Jerusalem has been special to him. This is what's fascinating throughout all of history. There have been very few, if any, other towns, cities, countries in the whole world that have been captured and destroyed and subdued in many, many ways as much as the country of Israel, Judah, and specifically the city of Jerusalem, again and again and again destroyed, destroyed, destroyed. And yet, there have never been a city and country that has risen from the ashes as much as that. The more, part, the more interesting part of it is, is when God makes that promise, He's not saying, I'm going to leave everybody there the whole time. What He says is, I have a different way. I'm going to raise you up. It's not like there's 20 people left and they grow out of those 20 people that have survived and stayed in the town of Jerusalem. In fact, it's much, much different. He takes away all the people across the world and then... He has a plan to bring them back. And he does that in the time of Zechariah. Brings back the people from, from Babylon that had taken them away as slaves. And now he's saying, I have power over this all. I have a plan for all of this. I'm going to use you. Again and again in history, we've seen these prophecies come true and know that God is keeping his eye on Israel, on Judah. All right? He is... It is the apple of his eye, as he's talked about earlier. Jerusalem, Judah, you are the apple of mine eye. Zion, you are the mighty city, Jerusalem. All right? You are that great and mighty symbol of the hope of God. And so we have those songs that we, that we sing. We sang one at Easter this year, which was Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Lift up your gates and sing, all right? Because he's coming, this mighty king is coming. And then there's a dark piece where the cross, the shadow of a mighty cross upon the lonely hill comes in. But then in the end times, he has said that he will rebuild and create the new Zion, the new Jerusalem. And in that new Zion, a new Jerusalem, the peace will come in. All right? And so as Zechariah looks across this, he describes this great peace. He, see, he sees peace. And what, what the king was going to bring was he was going to be a leader from sea to sea. He was going to be a leader from the river to the ends of the earth. Which means he would, he would conquer the whole entire earth, but do it through peace. He would live and teach peace. All right? This, this king coming meek and lowly, all right, talk back about that. He will bring it through peace. And so he is looking at the mountain range and saying, This king brings peace. I see that clearly. It's the very same king riding on a donkey. But how does the story go? Well, when, when he's done. When Jesus is done here, riding on a donkey, they crucify him. He was raised from the dead. And he does not bring peace at that moment to the, the town of Jerusalem. In fact, it's been in turmoil for some time. He does not bring peace to that. His peace comes when he comes again. Right? And that's that's the, the mountain in which Zechariah saw that king of peace. Now he has brought peace to the hearts of men during, now, during the time of now. And, it, and God is still watching Judah. Judah is being watched by God up through now. We've seen 
Israel rise and fall and rise and fall and again majorly fall. And it will only be a few short years, okay, a, a, a few hundred years, uh, but not, not long after Jesus comes along is the temple destroyed again. And once that temple is destroyed, it does not get rebuilt at that point. And it sits and it waits and it sits and it waits because God's plan until that point is finished. And once it's finished, He waits for time. He waits for the peace of Christ to come into men's hearts during this time frame. He protects Judah. He watches Judah. The the city of Jerusalem still exists. The site of the temple still exists. All of those things are in preparation for God's final move. And so, God is going to do something great and God is going to do something mighty. Alright? We see all these things that he does. It's a, an amazing thing that God does. And he says, I'm going to take and I'm going to protect and I'm going to bring back great blessings. And so he did for some time. And then really after that, things got unstable and kind of destroyed and it fell apart for a long time. And then, the, but the Jews were all over the world. They were dispersed during the diaspora. Okay, pushed around all the world, and the Jews ended up planted in every country practically in the entire world. And then along came a man who had evil intent. Okay, and this was much more modern, although there were others in the past that did the same thing to destroy these temples and destroy the people. But along came Hitler. And he came with intent to kill Jews and Christians, those who believed in God. Take them out. And so he went systematically through Europe to destroy the Jews. That wasn't much left of the city of Jerusalem. There wasn't much left of the country of Judah or Israel as a whole. And yet when that great, terrible time was finished, God brought back restoration. A time when you wouldn't think they've been destroyed all over the world. They were sought out in every place in the world to be taken down. And God had a different plan. God used that plan to bring them back. 1948, they all come back. The world reunites the Jews from all over the world and says, go back to your country, Israel. We want you to have this. We want you to go back. A defeated country. One that had been wiped nearly off the map. And and they bring them from all over the world and say... Put them right there. And today, they exist as a very powerful, small, but powerful nation because God's eye is still on Judah. All right. Let's go to chapter number 10. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright the clouds and give them showers of rain to every one grass in the field. All right? You ask of God the blessings and He gives it to you. His promises are real. Just as He says, I will do this, you ask for rain. They're real. It's real relief. It's real help. And it gives you blessings from it. As opposed to this, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock and they were troubled because there was no shepherd. This last chapter has been a division. Okay, We started out with the other nations. Okay, those other nations were God's enemies, and they were treated with destruction. They were treated with specific things they were going to be taken down with. Judah was not perfect, but was given over to God. And because Judah was given over to God, 
Judah was going to be have a special eye on them and be protected. And so, this is the, the picture of what it is to be a follower of God. Not perfect. And sometimes even chastened or disciplined by God Himself. But loved dearly. Loved as the most precious thing, protected, watched over. That's what He does for us. Alright? That's what He does for a person who knows Him. You ask for a blessing, He gives the blessing. Verse number 2, For the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Alright? Here's what God is. God says you, you say you ask God for a blessing, He gives you a real blessing. Something like rain that refreshes and renews. You ask the world for something. They give you idols. And they give you diviners or fortune tellers. They say, well, I know what's going to happen in your future. This is going to happen or that's going to happen. And they give you no real comfort because they do not know the future. Idols cannot fill our lives. Now you can say, well, we don't worship little statues of things anymore. That's uh, what I picture as an idol, right? But an idol is anything that fills your heart and excites your heart and... Anything you desire more than God. That puts it into a different category. So we often seek relief from our idols. We seek medication, self-medication from our idols. I want relief from my thoughts, from my worries, from my fears. I want relief from my loneliness, from my anger, from my frustration. And so what do we do? We seek after something and we say, oh, this covers that up a little bit. This medicates my thoughts. I don't have to think about that for a little while. All right? And what that is, we fill it in with things. We fill it in with self-medication. We fill it in with things like maybe alcohol, maybe drugs, maybe addictions. Maybe we fill our time with online things. Maybe we fill it with work. If we keep busy, we won't have to think about things. Maybe we fill it with other more insidious things. Maybe we fill it with pornography or fill it with something from, uh, that's easy to get. And we look for relief from it. And it promises relief. But in the end, there is only more frustration. There is no relief from it. There is no comfort from the things that we seek. And that's what he's saying. Judah, you've been doing this. You've been looking for these other, what these other countries give you, what these other areas have given you. They give you nothing. They give you no relief. I tell you the truth about the future. You go looking for the truth in, with some other person about the future. I tell you the truth and I give you real truth and real uh, future of what's going to happen. I give you prophecies. I tell you that and I give you relief. I give you comfort. I give you peace. I give you those things. I tell you, you, you have to deal with your sins. I ha- tell you, you have to do these things. I tell you, walk in obedience and I will give you relief. I will give you comfort. And he says it's like a refreshing rain when it comes from God. When you ask, you get it. When you ask for forgiveness, you get forgiveness. He says, but those leaders... He talks about the shepherds. He says, there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock in the house of Judah, and hath made them as his goodly horse in battle. Alright? So, here it is. He's saying, your leaders don't know what to do. They haven't led you to me either. 
They have taken you astray. They've taken you out of the way. And so, again and again and again, you have to walk separately. You have to become different. You have to stand out. All right. He says, I'm going to strengthen Judah. I'm going to do great things. He goes on through chapter 10 and says, I am going to protect Judah. I'm going to strengthen Judah. I'm going to give comfort through Judah. They're going to become stronger. They're going to become joyful. They're going to grow in number. They'll be protected by me. And they will be close to my heart. They'll be obedient to me. And from Judah, you are going to get a cornerstone. Cornerstone is that base foundation piece that says that's what we're going to finish everything off. Everything is trued up to the cornerstone. Your foundation of everything stands on. That comes from Judah. And what is in Judah? Jesus comes out of Judah, the tribe of Judah. All right. I'm going to watch, I'm going to protect, I'm going to bring you the cornerstone. He says, I'm going to bring you a tent peg out of there. If you don't have a tent peg driven in, everything falls down. Okay, The old style tents, you had ropes or twines pulled down to the tent peg, and the tent peg had to be hard and firm into the ground or the whole tent collapsed. And that's what Jesus is. He brings you firmness. He brings you foundation. He brings you true to be true. Shows you what truth is and perfection. But he says they're scattered all around the world. He shows a picture and they're scattered all around the world. As we talked, uh, where the Jews have been scattered all around the world, but God, he says, I will bring them back. I've planted them like seeds around the world that they might show who I really am just by how they live. That they stand out amongst every nation, and they do. Wherever the Jewish people are, they stand out. You can see them clearly. They stand out, and they should point back to God. The same goes with a Christian. We should stand out for what we believe. We are planted like seeds throughout the nations of the world. And because of that, we should stand up. We should do what we are called to do. We should stand up for what is right. We should give everything that we can to be that obedient like Judah. We want to be like Judah. Our identity is that we want to be like Judah. And Judah's identity is... Identified with God. Okay? The cornerstone comes out of Judah. The branch comes out of Judah. The king comes out of Judah. He's coming. The glory of the temple of the Lord. All of those things are coming. And the promises happen. And Zechariah says, look for this promise. Most important promise I ever made. My son, Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. Have a good day.